Season three of the Missing Witches podcast is brought to you by Foxglove Farm. Use offer code MISSINGWITCHES at checkout. Welcome home to our great expansive coven between the ears, sweet friends, old and new. And thank you for taking a minute in your life for a little feminist occult history. Because this work of prying open the stories we've been told, not just to include the spectacular and heroic lives of women and witches of all genders and gender non-conforming magical beings, but also their shocking and glittering ideas is hard and great and patriarchy disrupting work and we are here doing our best just to contribute a little to that monumental labor and not fuck it up too much and all our quiet hours of research and writing become alive with purpose and magic when you choose to be here with us. So thank you for listening. Thank you for writing in with your beautiful stories and ideas and contributions. Thank you for taking the time and emotional energy to correct and educate us. We love you for it. And for those who are able, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Your generosity astounds us. In this episode, I want to sketch for you the life and impact of a woman who has been called the mother of modern spirituality and who was also one of the greatest explorers of the 1900s, though she's rarely credited for it. She spoke Russian, Georgian, English, French, Italian, Arabic, and Sanskrit, and was a much maligned philosopher, activist, founder of a world religion that she never wanted to be one. Just a means of investigating the wisdom of the gods. Theosophy. She was one of the first Westerners to convert to Buddhism, the first Russian to gain American citizenship, and the first Western woman to make it into the sacred, fortified Himalayan nation of Tibet, where she lived and studied for years. Probably. She was certainly fiercely independent, a chain-smoking, not-quite-vegetarian, possibly transgender, queer, celibate, philosopher, medium, spectacular synthesizer of Eastern and Western philosophy. Yes, friends, I'm talking about the deeply divisive and intentionally elusive Helena P. Blavatsky. HPB to her friends. And you know, I think after my research, maybe I would actually like to count myself among them. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Well, maybe not. Because HPB has been accused of racism because of some of the deeply racist fucking things she wrote and the completely vile racist things some of her followers did, and you gotta admit, that's fair while transmitting a worldview and universe history that was supposedly channeled from her masters, who were perhaps real teachers who could speak to her across space and time, or perhaps they were a useful lie, or maybe just a deft composite of people she'd learned from that allowed her to keep them out of the limelight and allowed her to speak her mind. Anyway, through their voices and in letters and in her own writing, she speaks of root races and puts an Aryan race at the top of a current wave of race history. And in a truly horrible footnote, says mankind is obviously divided into God-informed men and lower human creatures. This problematic text goes on and it's despicable. And I don't want to give that old colonial putrescence much airtime. But I also don't want to leave its stench till the end of the episode, like a clickbait article putting its facts in the third paragraph. 
scholar of religion Olav Hammer wrote that on rare occasions Blavatsky's writings are overtly racist. And he added that she has this kind of anti-Semitism in particular that derives from this position of Judaism as the origin of Christianity because she had an intense dislike for Christianity. The darkest unfolding of all of this is that her ideas about root races are picked up by actual practicing fascists and cobbled together and passed around and end up spouted by occult Nazis. Just crazy, evil, nonsense, bullshit. No mistake. Part of me wants to kind of stop here and be like, that's a wrap, because I don't want to watch movies made by rapists or listen to music by R. Kelly, and I don't want to learn from the ideas of racists. But on deeper reading of Blavatsky, I do think there's room for context here. And I'll tell you why, and if I'm wrong, let's talk about it. Because at the absolute core of her philosophy, her repeated goal, and I mean repeated over and over, is to form, quote, a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity, without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Arian, as she used it, and its general definition at the time, refers to a vast cross-section of humanity that share a language root, and specifically include Jews, Arabs, Indians, and other people of color. Without dismissing the times when she is clearly Victorian racist, the overwhelming body of her writing and thought is less like that footnote and more like this piece from The Moat and the Bean, where she wrote, The whites of England and America act worse than Cain towards their black subjects and citizens. They torture them mentally, when not physically, from their cradle to their tomb, refusing them every privilege they have a right to, and then turning round and spitting on them as if they were so many toads. As her fairest-minded biographer, Gary Lachman, writes, HPB was undoubtedly a child of her time, and race was an idea central to much 19th century thought, hers included. It's not surprising that some of her remarks about sub-races elicit a cringe, but she can't be held responsible for how some outright racially-oriented occultists misused some of her ideas. These ideas themselves form only a very small part of her total worldview and appeared in their more extreme form long after her death. I have no doubt that had Blavatsky been alive, she would have fought fiercely to disassociate theosophy from this abuse, just as she did from any other. And then... This also from Lachman. Gandhi first came into contact with Theosophy in London in 1889, when he was studying law and generally trying to adapt himself to Western, specifically British, ways. He believed, as many educated young Indians did at the time, that his people should give up their old ways and strive to be like the English. He met the Keatleys, uh, who he refers to as two theosophist brothers. They were really uncle and nephew, and they introduced him to the Bhagavad Gita. They were reading the popular Edwin Arnold English translation and suggested to the young student that they might read it in its original together. Gandhi was ashamed to admit that he had never read it in the original or any other language, but he was determined to. And the Bhagavad Gita became the most important book in his life. He later said that his doctrine of ahimsa, nonviolence was rooted in it. In November 1889, the Keatleys took Gandhi to meet HPB. On the same visit, he also met Annie Besant, whose recent conversion to theosophy was something of a scandal. Gandhi didn't join the society then, but a year and a half later, in March 1891, he became an associate member of the Blavatsky Lodge. Reading Blavatsky inspired Gandhi to study Hinduism, 
and to reject the notion taught by Christian missionaries that his nation's religion was mere superstition. It was this belief in the value of his own tradition that sustained him throughout his career. So there's that. And if you think these contradictions are enough to extend another couple more minutes of curiosity, then I thank you for your time and patience. But I guess just to bracket this thought and make it really clear, I don't know if we're doing the right thing to include this story in our podcast. I want to say that I know and accept that all white people, myself included, are racist. Like it's shitty, but it helps to admit it. When we benefit from systemic racism, it distorts our perspective and puts blinders on us in ways we're not fully aware of. And the best we can do is try to claw the filters off. Be honest, get educated, and do better. Here at Missing Witches, we don't want to shy away from hard conversations. We're going looking behind the love and light to name and shame the hate and find the stories we've been missing. A white noblewoman in the 19th century may have been groundbreaking in her ideas about the universe and space and time and religion and the races and sexes and what was interesting to read about and where was safe for her to go and still have carried the weight and been distorted like gravity by the intensely racist discourse she moved through. Male philosophers of her time certainly were, and we don't disregard them utterly. Carl Jung tells a horrible story that begins, a bushman had a little son whom he loved with the tender monkey love characteristic of primitives. Tolstoy, Marx, Darwin, Thoreau, Nietzsche, Gandhi, all said problematic things about race, to put it mildly, and have all been challenged and largely lovingly redeemed. The 19th century was dominated by European powers that needed above all else to justify slavery and colonialism. This was the air they breathed. This is a weight so heavy that even when it's anathema to you, it can eke its nasty way out in your language and behavior. We live in a world where that violence still reverberates and where capitalism presses down in the same way and where the goal of a universal brotherhood, sisterhood, non-binary witchhood is a more glowing and imperative goal than ever. So I want to see what I can learn and keep from the HPB who wrote, Hast thou attuned thyself to the suffering of humanity, O candidate for light? O candidates for light. D.T. Suzuki, who brought Zen Buddhism to the West, said of HPB's writing, Here is the real Mahayana Buddhism and remarked that HPB had in some way been initiated into the deeper side of Mahayana teachings and then gave out what she deemed wise to the Western world. Oh, and she moved things with her mind. So I'm curious about her, and maybe just more curious now that I've read a bunch for this episode, and I want to do the work to include her in the word witch. For this episode, I should say, I owe a great debt to Gary Lachman and his book, Madame Blavatsky, The Mother of Modern Spirituality. And if you're like, wait, Gary Lachman from Blondie? Then one, you're way cooler than me. And two, you are correct. Gary Lachman from Blondie is one of the most trusted and prolific and fair-minded but still fully witchy historians of the occult. Surprise! The world is infinite and weird and glorious. And so are the stories that seem to surround HPB. She is deeply divisive, with some intense and passionate followers, and some justifiably concerned, and also some deeply snarky and darkly motivated detractors. Lachman aims to find a middle way, and I think he mostly succeeds triumphantly. 
aside from some unfortunate repeated references to her, quote, more than ample bosom and massively stout stature. I'll get into how her size gets talked about later. Lachman starts by sketching the scope of her impact as a thinker. As early as 1970, in an article for McCall's magazine, the novelist Kurt Vonnegut dubbed Blavatsky the founding mother of the occult in America. Yet she's mostly remembered now as a charlatan, so it goes. Those who are aware of her and of her contribution to Western thought have a different view. Like the historian of esotericism, Christopher Bamford, they wonder why she is not, as Bamford believes she should be, counted with Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as one of the creators of the 20th century. By the time of Blavatsky's death in London, 1891, the theosophical movement which she had started had spread from New York to India, Europe, and beyond, and included among its devotees some important names such as Thomas Edison. And by the early years of the 20th century, it was a force to be reckoned with, informing major developments not only in spirituality and esotericism, but in politics, art, religion, and much more. Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, who was initiated into the Theosophical Society by Annie Besant, the socialist and freethinker who converted after meeting Blavatsky and who, as president of the society, helped India win its independence. Even Einstein is said to have kept a well-thumbed copy of Blavatsky's magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine, on his desk. And some theosophists have gone so far as to infer that the inspiration for Einstein's most famous formula, E equals mc square, came from that dense and weighty tone. In her beautiful book, Waking the Witch, Pam Grossman traces another line of HPB's impact, starting with The Wizard of Oz. She writes, The Wizard of Oz is a spectacular story, not only as a parable about friendship and truth-seeking, but also due to its exceptional originality. The Emerald City, the Yellow Brick Road, magical slippers, a brave farm girl protagonist, and of course, the good and bad witches are all now seemingly timeless icons from what some have called the first American fairy tale. But several of these ideas were not invented by a bomb out of whole cloth. In fact, a great many of them can be traced to the influence of his mother-in-law, the suffragist and equal rights pioneer, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Gage was a follower of theosophy the 19th century Gnostic religious movement that brought Eastern mystical thought to the West. She would have been familiar with the ideas that one can go on a spiritual journey up 13 golden stairs to find enlightenment at the temple of divine wisdom, and that one can reveal the ultimate truth behind all world religions by metaphorically lifting the veil of illusion or appearing behind a curtain, perhaps. Interestingly, the Theosophical Society was started by another mighty woman, Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky one of the few female spiritual leaders of the age, who was often slandered and called a fraud by the press during her life. Still, Theosophy had many adherents, and it still does today. Encouraged by Gage Baum and his wife, Maud Gage Baum, became members of the Theosophical Society's Chicago chapter on September 4th, 1892. He also began writing his stories down on paper at his mother-in-law's behest. Like many suffragists, Gage was also an abolitionist, and her childhood home in Fayetteville, New York, was part of the Underground Railroad. I think I was born with a hatred of oppression, Gage is quoted as saying in the 1888 International Council of Women, before recounting her memories of sheltering slaves and attending anti-slavery gatherings. HPB was born with a hatred of oppression, too as her history of working with resistance movements attests, including a network of Sikh and Hindu maharajas in a secret coalition opposing Christian missionaries during the years she lived in India. 
And while she is problematic and her story holds more twists and turns than we can totally do justice to here, I want us to see at least this. In the second half of the 1800s, a young woman who has heard the world sing to her across unseen planes her whole life and set inanimate objects humming and bumping and rattling and sought out spiritual teachers in unlikely places, a sassy, magical child with a beloved novelist for a mother, a teenager basically, runs away from a marriage to a much older man and travels the world alone seeking spiritual knowledge for 10 years. After a childhood introduction to Tibetan Buddhism and shamanism and Freemason secrets through her grandfather and others, she reads and photo-memorizes thousands of obscure spiritual texts and learns enough to get by in many languages, which she will then quote off the top of her head without reference to the original sort material when writing her books later. She then experiences a sickness of the soul like we've seen with other witches, and like them, it honed her power. She learned secrets from masters of many faiths and was a medium who offered the world something like, but utterly unlike, religion. She broke through heavy programming to share the belief that the narrowness of Victorian thinking, the bombast and blinker triumphalism of colonialism, was just the childhood of an age in a series of ages. That greater knowledge and much wider perspective had emerged before and would again. She is the forgotten and discarded mother of the quote-unquote new age, who fiercely defended her reputation for never having had sex or kids, often wore men's clothes, lived unbound by the rules of her gender, and used her body as she pleased, as a strength, as a disguise. Where other witches, including Marjorie Cameron, in another episode of this season, and other sex magic makers we'll talk about next season, use sex as a conduit for power, HPB used celibacy. And I hope you'll feel empowered to find yourself at home anywhere you fucking like in that spectrum and with whomever makes you feel magical. In Henry Steele Alcott, she had a friend who believed in her. He had served in the U.S. Army during the American Civil War, was promoted to the rank of colonel, and in 1865, following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, assisted in the investigation of the assassination. He was a truth seeker. She called him Maloney, and he called her Jack. And from the first time they met, he would write about her ability to manifest spiritual phenomena. And then they lived together in a series of rented apartments in New York City, which they decorated with taxidermied animals and images of spiritual figures. And she taught him, and encouraged by her, he became celibate, teetotaling and vegetarian, although she herself was unable to totally commit to the latter. And they would found the Theosophical Society together live and study and run the society in India together from 1879 to 1885. I'm going to keep jumping around in her timeline. I tried not to, but I gave up. There is so much more to her biography and so many scandals and betrayals that it's easy to get as overwhelmed in them as we can be in discussions of her complex ideas and in the conspiracies about who her teachers were and which of her followers were able to communicate with them. And I kind of decided to skip all that. It's really easy to get into if you're interested. Mostly what I want to ask is just, is there magic here? And if there is some kernel, then is that important to us as witches looking for our history? Christmas. Risa and I are opening.
bring our box from Foxglove Farm, our beautiful sponsor, Foxglove Farm. I've been like scrolling through her website, being like, I wonder what treasures are what she can treasures will be inside. So every full moon, um, Foxglove Farm sends out subscription boxes that are curated, handmade items, always ethically sourced. So first of all, like you said, Risa, everything smells amazing. amazing. It's just a box full of so much excitement. There's so mm. many beautiful things. So it's things that she um, hand makes in her kitchen with her kids. And then sometimes she also partners with other um, witches to include things that are appropriate to the season. Oh, and it's a printout that shows out our podcast. So this is a version of exactly what went out in the kit to everyone in the subscription boxes. So she includes a super sweet letter and she describes the different things that are in it. One of the things that I saw there that I'm so excited about is some of her teas. I want to drink anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> we are going to drink. Oh, oh my goodness. There's so much stuff, you this guys. This is so beautiful. No wonder. She, she told us, she was like, I'll be honest with you guys, I barely break even on these boxes, yeah. and, and now I see why it's Oh my god, there's, there's little moon incense bowls, and peace-invoking incense, there's black wasp, moisturizing soap, oh my gosh. Oh my goodness, there's a stone in here. <gasps> oh my, oh my goodness, Risa, touch it, oh my feel gosh. its energy. I love her beautiful rock. Oh, it's so beautiful, it's amethyst, she says put this under your pillow sleep with it in your hand. I mean, it's very obvious that this is a labor of love that Foxglove Farm is doing here. I, I'm, I'm going to become a subscriber. Oh, yeah. you can mm-hmm. refer a friend and get discounts. <laughs> Just send her a message and she'll send you a $10 gift code. There's all kinds of really... this. The thing about Sammy is she loves what she does so much. You, I mean, all of our interactions with her, it was so clear that she's putting so much of her heart into this business um, because it really comes from a place of wanting to heal herself and heal her world and build a network and a, a coven, you know, like it's really coming from that place. And we're so we were so happy to get to work with someone who works from that place. And we talked to her. Um, I mean, Amy's really good at having these conversations, but we, um, you know, they're we have uh, people that raised concerns in the witch community about smudging being kind of taken and sold um, as a form of white watch- washing to take like a very sacred uh, indigenous traditional traditional spiritual practice and sell it especially you know i mean it gets done in some more or less like horrific forms by you know multinational corporations who are strip farming places and then sometimes just unintentionally using language that we don't realize is loaded um and so we're really thankful to people who contacted us who you know indigenous people who take the time to listen to our podcast and find something of value there and also do the emotional labor to correct us really 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 appreciate it yes it's it's hard to find a perfect 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 uh person um but sammy is as close as i could get certainly sage isn't in all of her boxes and um everything is given with instructions she never calls it smudging because smudging is a very specific and very sacred ritual and she pointed out that she actually had used that language and been corrected and like really felt that correction and felt the weight of having made that mistake and is like remove that language 
Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's like burning things to clean and purify a space is something that we all can do and something we all can have access and, and to. And it's cross-cultural if and you think about Catholic, Buddhist. Yeah. I mean, we all have this like burning of incense. White sage, of course, is is au couture right now yeah. and so it's becoming a very very serious problem not only uh, a, a, a cultural problem of appropriation but also a, an environmental problem yeah. of this being taken yeah. and uh, exploited and then not available to the people who need it and who've cherished and protected that plant for generations so I, she is using like the only Sammy is Foxglove Farm is using the only organically farmed white sage left in North America and I'm sure there's ways that that could be better in terms of maybe working with indigenous people local to that area when I looked on the farm's webpage I couldn't find any indication of whether those farmers were themselves indigenous um, so there's areas there where you know if you have more emotional energy to take up pushing that maybe write to those people ask those questions and if you feel like in your life that's not a product that you can use, then, you know, there's ways to make your own bundles of dried herbs for things that are grown locally. Um, it's not a smudging. That's not a, that's not a practice that's yours unless it is from the, the you know community you grew up in. But you can certainly burn and find a way to cleanse and use fire for cleansing and use smoke for cleansing. And you can certainly use the beautiful things that are in this box that were created with love and a desire to build an ethical community. Yeah. And again, it's it's important that we keep having these conversations and keep having them and keep yeah. having them. So stay tuned. In the new year, we're going to do uh, a special with some beautiful guests um, on the subject of cultural appropriation, specifically as it relates to the indigenous uh, American community. Yeah. And the way that that community can be specifically um, cannibalized by new spiritual movements. Mm -hmm. As we come to the close of this season, we really just want to say thank you to Foxglove Farm for being, uh, first of all, a fan of the podcast. And a friend now. And a friend and just yeah. these ethics that are so in line with what we're doing and trying to do. Homemade, handmade ethically sourced made with love she calls herself naked in the kitchen covered in herbs yes. and uh and that's how we wish we could all live yes. according to her sister vera by the age of 14 hpb would dream awake and aloud sharing a near constant stream of visions vera wrote for helena all nature seemed animated with a mysterious life of its own she heard the voice of every object and form whether organic or inorganic, and claimed consciousness and being. In the 1850s, after deciding she could return home without being married off, she returns to her family for a bit and starts a business rafting logs because she notices a fungus which turns wood into spunk, highly inflammable and used as a touchwood for fires, that covered trees in her neighborhood. Things start happening around her. Wraps in the walls, windows and doors, furniture moving of its own accord. Lackman writes, she had acquired a reputation in Tiflis and other places as a magician, a seer, and what we would today call a psychic and a healer. By this time, she had given up answering questions by raps, which was tiring and time-consuming. 
and taken up giving spoken or written replies. She later told AP Senate how she could read people's thoughts by seeing them emerge from their heads as a kind of spiral of luminous smoke that formed pictures and images around them. And she remarked that often these thoughts find a home in the consciousness of other people. She had, it seems, begun to learn how to control the strange phenomena happening around her. In 1864, in Mingrelia, on the shore of the Black Sea, HPB was thrown from her horse. She fractured her spine and entered a coma that lasted for months. She wasted away, and it was feared she would die. She could respond to questions, but most of the time she was, she later said, in a kind of dream in which she was somewhere else as someone else. Another example of the strange double life she had entered years ago. She said that while she was in this state, she had no idea who Helena Blavatsky was, and that she seemed to travel in a far-off country as a totally different individuality. Back in Tiflis, she re recovered, and along with her health, she received something else. She had gained complete control of her powers. Like many other esoteric figures, Steiner, Jung, Gurdjieff, Swedenborg, HPB had passed through what the historian of psychology, Henri Ellenberger, calls a creative illness and had come out a changed person. Following her creative illness, HPB hit the road again, traveling in Italy, Transylvania, and Serbia. From there, her sketchy travel diary speaks of Odessa, Syria, Lebanon, Jerusalem, Egypt, Greece. She may have studied Kabbalah with a learned rabbi at some point during these travels. Sylvia Cranston records that she corresponded with him until his death, and that his picture was one of her treasures. In 1867, she was in the Balkans, Hungary, Venice, Florence, and Montana, where on November 3rd she was wounded while fighting against the French and the papal army on the side of Garibaldi. She later impressed Colonel Alcott with the musket balls still embedded in her leg and shoulder and showed him where a saber had broken her left arm in two places. She was left for dead in a ditch. The battle was a rout, and Garibaldi himself was captured. And as with her earlier creative illnesses, this near-death episode, too, helped her gain greater control of her powers. From Montana, she returned to the Balkans, where word came from the master to head to Constantinople. From here, she would proceed for the third time to India and Tibet. This list is jaw-dropping, but even if the only place she traveled to was Tibet, that alone would make her one of the greatest travelers of the 19th century. And there is admittedly little evidence to prove that she was there, except that she says she was, and she describes it, and the teachings she comes home with resonate for many scholars of Tibetan Buddhism, some who see their origin in the Book of Secret Correspondences of the 4th century Taoist Li Tsin, or in the Tantric Books of Kiyutse, Lachman writes, on her third attempt, she was successful. In 1867, HPB was in the Balkans, where she got word from the master to proceed to Constantinople. From here, she would strike out once again for Tibet. Jean Overton Fuller suggests that she met Master Moria there, and with him took the short, direct, but terrible overland route across Turkey, Persia, Afghanistan, India, and the Kashmir. Just to get to Tibet itself must have been grueling. The quote-unquote short direct route from Constantinople to Shigatse, where they were headed and where the Tibetan Buddhist monastery of Tashuhunpo is located, is just over 3,000 miles. It is short when compared to the sea route, which would have had HPB heading west again to Marseille, where she would have boarded a ship that would have taken her round the Cape of Good Hope to India. Fuller suggests they could have made 20 miles a day on horseback. 
At that speed, it would have taken them some five months to reach their destination. Once in Tibet, the demands of the travelers would have increased. A later traveler in Tibet, the Lama Anagarika Govinda, writes of his own trek across the roof of the world. Imagine, toiling for some 200-300 miles over endless mountain ranges, through steaming hot valleys and over cold, cloud-covered passes, fording wild mountain streams, where a slip of the foot means certain death, or crossing the thunderous abyss of a torrential river, clinging precariously to a shaky reed rope of uncertain age. Imagine, traveling through gorges where stones are falling from invisible heights and where waterfalls seem to rush down straight from the clouds. Imagine negotiating overhanging cliffs on a narrow mountain path and sharp-edged rock ledges which cut into sore and tired feet. This is Lachman continuing... The idea of a thin Madame Blavatsky, let alone a quote-unquote massively stout one, making this journey is enough to raise questions about it. But then we remember Rasputin walking from Siberia to Mount Aethos, and the Hungarian Kasoma de Koros reaching Ladakh from Eastern Europe, mostly on foot, and we realize it would have been possible, even if, as HPB's critics believe, highly unlikely. Although forbidden to most outsiders, Tibet's borders, it seems, were open to people of neighboring lands, and traders and pilgrims from Ladakh, India, Bhutan, China, and Mongolia often entered undisturbed. HPB's Mongolian features, as they were described, would have helped in this case. And while HPB's critics often refer to her masters as Tibetans, the truth is they were not. Master Moria was from the beginning her, quote, tall, mysterious Indian. And another master whom she would meet and stay with on this journey was, at least according to some researchers, of Sikh and Punjabi extraction. Jean Overton Fuller, whose mother and grandfather made the journey themselves, argues that there are markets in Tibet where one can get what one needs along the way. And that unlike the British, who were scouting for secret and unknown paths through which the Russians might descend on them, HPB would most likely take the most well-traveled route, which would be the one indeed where there would be markets used by other travelers. We also know that HPB could ride a horse, and that she is thought to have learned enough Tibetan from the Tartar nomads she met during her stay at Saratov to ask questions, buy supplies, and get directions. The better question, of course, is what did she learn once she got there? Blavatsky speaks of visiting a monastery, but not being allowed to enter. Lachman continues, she was told, however, that on its altar were curious cube-shaped tablets on which verses in an unknown language, Senzar, were inscribed. She speaks of thin oblong squares and discs or plates containing these verses, which were preserved on the altars of the temples attached to centers where the so-called contemplative or Mahayana schools are established. Mahayana, or great vehicle, is the form of Buddhism that by most accounts appeared around the time of Christ and includes the notion of the bodhisattva, an enlightened individual who rejects his own salvation or passing into nirvana until that of all sentient beings is accomplished. The verses inscribed on the oblong squares were recited to her, and she memorized them. And some of them would later be translated by her and appear as the voice of the silence. The mysterious stanzas of De Zian, on which her magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine, is an enormous commentary, were also inscribed in the same strange tongue. Ideas about a single primeval language were popular in occult and esoteric circles going back to the late 19th century, and were linked to a similar notion of some single primal sacred revelation, the Prisia Theologica, or perennial philosophy, associated with the mythic sage and founder of all knowledge, 
Hermes Trismegistus. Blavatsky herself speaks of Senzar as the mystic name for the secret sacerdotal language, the mystery speech of the initiated adepts all over the world. Along with learning Senzar and English, while in Tibet, HPB engaged in a perhaps even more difficult study, the development and control of her psychic powers. The masters Moria, Kuthumi, and others of the school were adepts, men, and one assumes also women, who possessed remarkable abilities. They could communicate at a distance through thought transference. The term telepathy would not be used until the psychical investigator Frederick Myers coined it in 1882. They could also read minds. They could project their astral bodies or bilocate, as the phenomenon came to be called, and seemingly appear to be in two or more places at once. They could dematerialize and rematerialize objects and transport them over distances, rather like Star Trek's transporter. They could enter and dominate another's consciousness, what in contemporary New Age speak is known as walk-ins. They were clairvoyant and clairaudient. They could perceive and command occult entities or elementals. The salamanders, undines, sylphs, and gnomes related to ancient elements of fire, water, air, and earth. They could see etheric auras and read the history of objects through the power of psychometry. They were precognitive and had other powers as well. If her being in Tibet is difficult enough for Blavatsky's critics to swallow, the idea that while there she was trained in the use of these remarkable abilities is, to put it mildly, absolutely unbelievable. Whether she was in Tibet, Tanganyika, or Timbuktu, this sort of thing they say is simply impossible. It should be pointed out, however, that other travelers in the Forbidden Land also encountered individuals with some unusual talents. Although Alexandra Devanil found no traces of Blavatsky's masters, she encountered enough magic in Tibet to write a book about it. Tibet, she said, seems to offer peculiarly favorable conditions for telepathy, as well as for psychic phenomena in general. In 1912, the 13th Dalai Lama, Zubten Gyatso, told David Neal that, quote, A bodhisattva is the basis of countless magic forms. By the power generated in a state of perfect concentration of mind, he may, at one and the same time, show a phantom of himself in thousands of millions of worlds. He may create not only human forms, but any forms he chooses, even those of inanimate objects, such as hills, enclosures, houses, forests, roads, bridges, etc. He may produce atmospheric phenomena as well as the thirst-quenching beverage of immortality. There is no limit to his power of phantom creation. After all her years of travel, and with this immense knowledge downloaded into her being, she went looking for her people, and she began working on her great books. From the Theosophical Society. In 1878, H.P. Blavatsky became an American citizen, the first Russian woman ever to do so. In 1879, she and Colonel Alcott moved to India, and in 1882, they established the headquarters of the Theosophical Society at Adyar, near Madras. This remains the international headquarters for the society, which is now established in 70 countries of the world. The first major book by H.P. Blavatsky was Isis Unveiled, in two volumes. It created a sensation when published in New York City in 1877. The first edition of a thousand copies sold out in two days. Within seven months, three printings had been issued. The book has as its subtitle, A Master Key to the Mysteries of Ancient and Modern Science and Theology. 
Volume 1 deals with claims of infallibility for science, while Volume 2 deals with similar claims for religion. Both show that the ancients had a wisdom that has been partly forgotten in our time. Isis Unveiled moves from ancient Greek views on matter and force advanced by Pythagoras and Plato to the Kabbalist religious philosophy developed by Jewish scholars from a mystical interpretation of the scriptures. Blavatsky discusses mythological stories in many religious texts, aspects of magic, ancient Egyptian writings, classical philosophies, world religions, and a multitude of other subjects. In her preface, she states that the book is a plea for recognition of the hermetic philosophy, the anciently universal wisdom religion. Blavatsky's greatest work is The Secret Doctrine. HPB made it clear that The Secret Doctrine was not written as a revelation, but is rather a collection of fragments scattered throughout thousands of volumes embodying the scriptures of the great Asian and pre-Christian European religions and philosophies. Furthermore, she strongly rejected the dogmatic interpretation of any of her work. The reader is asked to study the ideas from this or any other source only in the light of common human experience and reason. The secret doctrine outlines a vast scheme of evolution relating to the universe and to humanity and to the unseen as well as the seen worlds of manifestation in which life is said to exist in thousands of forms. It is based on three fundamental propositions an omnipresent, eternal, boundless, and immutable principle on which all speculation is impossible since it transcends the power of human conception and which could only be dwarfed by any human expression or similitude. It is beyond the range and reach of thought. The eternity of the universe in toto as a boundless plane. Periodically, the playground of numberless universes incessantly manifesting and disappearing. The fundamental identity of all souls with the universal oversoul the latter being itself an aspect of the unknown root and the obligatory pilgrimage for every soul, a spark of the former, through the cycle of incarnation in accordance with cyclic and karmic law. Within the Theosophical Society, Blavatsky is the leader of a core group of 12 women and 12 men who have met their shadows and overcome the surge of ego resistance that comes when starting on the kind of work that challenges the primacy of ego who together commit themselves to the study of occult theosophy, the fluidity of mind and matter. All throughout her life, in different scenes, people tested her and she gave them the proof they wanted, or answers they seeked, and her reputation mounted, but then she would stop. She sought to spread the word of knowledge she had gained, and she fought to uplift and make equal, and to resist the colonizing tools of religion and violence that hampered the creation of a universal brotherhood. And so she would seek visibility and use the press and her abilities to get it, but then she would get frustrated with the public hunger to speak with the dead, and frustrated that no one would listen when she explained that the dead were gone. Medium selling access to your dearly departed were at best tapping into stale energy patterns left from lives, disrupting spirits on their way to rest, then reincarnation. At worst, they were often frauds. Her resistance to the popular movement of spiritualists, her attempts to explain something more subtle she saw going on instead, would make her a target. As with the anger, she would keep upon what she saw as the hypocrisy of the Christian church, as well as quotes like this, aimed straight at its heart. Instead of stating that God made man after his own image, we ought in truth to say that man imagines God after his image, forgetting that he has set up his own reflection for worship. And 
So little have the first Christians who despoiled the Jews of their Bible understood the first four chapters of Genesis in their esoteric meaning that they never perceived that not only was no sin intended in this disobedience, but that actually the serpent was the Lord God himself, who as the Ophis, the Logos, or the bearer of divine creative wisdom, taught mankind to become creators in their turn. Blavatsky was repeatedly framed as a fraud by competitors, and the taint of those accusations, and even when they were revealed to have been blatantly orchestrated by blackmailers, lingers still. I guess my question is, what if, just as an experiment, we believed her? We don't have to take her words as scriptures. She made clear she didn't want that. And I'd suggest scripture should more often be treated less religiously and with an open language and imagination-loving mind. We could just try out believing what she tells us of her experience, of things moving around her, of vivid waking dreams, of a feeling of the life and consciousness in every object, of seeking and finding teachers who took her experiences seriously, of communication that exceeds what other people know to be possible. And we can enjoy her contradictions too, she certainly did. She admitted to muddying facts. She implied it was a way of hiding in plain sight. I wonder if her body functioned for her similarly. Some biographers insist she couldn't have traveled to Tibet because of her weight, so she must have been a prostitute. Others argue she couldn't have been a prostitute because of her weight. <laughs> Many spend a lot of time trying to figure out how much she weighed and when to try to answer the question of where she could have been. My guess is we wouldn't spend so much time focusing on this question or as much energy dismissing and disparaging her expansive metaphysical philosophical works if she was a man. My other guess, those first 10 years on the road changed her from a girl to something more like an androgynous road warrior witch in men's boots and with features that could look at home most places, smoking a pound of tobacco a day and cutting it with her own always sharp knife. She demanded to be taken seriously. And with a photographic memory for texts and a quick ear for languages, she could have gone anywhere, I think. Slipped through most borders. Made the kind of friends who reveal their unexpected magic to you. I know there have always been brave women. For hundreds of thousands of years, though their histories may not have been recorded, there were women travelers, warriors, gentle leaders, priestesses. This is what, on balance, I think I love most about HPB. She is a traveler, and a storyteller, and a synthesizer, and she is an icon of those bodies whose stories and powers have not been told. Above all, she just wanted to learn and find people to teach her. She made some gross errors that were very typical of her time, though she was, on the whole, entirely atypical. The network of humanity, let alone the delicate ecosystems of living things and whispering energies and ideas, is vast. And even with spiritual guides, what we see is only ever partial. Even if we can glimpse higher planes, we can still be cruel in the common ways of our time. So the message from HPB is to seek, I think. Let's be honest about what we see, even when it's not proper, or possibly even possible. Let's work to be brave enough to share our own truths and create our own ideals and to learn to be cracked open anew and to see and find and create a world beyond materialist illusion, a world for those attuned to each other's suffering. 
a world for the would-be bearers of light. As the Oracle of Los Angeles suggests in her book Initiated and in another episode of this podcast, let's build gardens and bridges from right here where we are, even if we may still be walking like Persephone in yet another chamber of the endless underworld. Our magic is ours, a perfectly unique piece. And the more we gain that particular clarity and unlearn our biases and assumptions, the more we come into that power. The other thing I love about HPB is that like the witches in labs we have met through this podcast, she sees magic as an inherent and emergent element of the natural world. She wrote, The exercise of magical power is the exercise of natural powers, but superior to the ordinary functions of nature. A miracle is not a violation of the laws of nature, except for ignorant people. Magic is but a science, a profound knowledge of the occult forces in nature, and of the laws governing the visible or the invisible world. Spiritualism in the hands of an adept becomes magic, for he is learned in the art of blending together the laws of the universe without breaking any of them and thereby violating nature. A few days ago, I went for a walk in the morning around the lake with the kid strapped to me. She spent most of her little baby life covered in eczema. Her whole face was red and raw and itchy, so much so that we couldn't wear her facing us in her little carrier. She'd rub her face raw against us, crying and crying. But now, for the first time, exactly one year since my due date, when I'd been waddling slowly around the same lake waiting for her, I can walk her to sleep wrapped against me in a hug. Her little face is clear, and this particular suffering has passed, at least for today. She looked up at me with her tough little mug, yawning and muttering herself to sleep. The trees around us were covered in frost. And as the sun rose and burned off the fog on the lake, the light caught the frost. Trees of all colors sparkled, shot with this glazed light. And then on the road ahead of me, the yellow birch leaves, clipped by the night's cold, began one by one to let go of their branches. They slipped down as the frost melted and caught the sunlight. So the air all across the road was breathing with slow, long, golden leaves and the softest, possible rain of frost becoming dew. I lost my own breath and stood under this unexpected benediction, this unplanned baptism. I left the road for the trail and found a spot where the trail opens into a natural circle in the woods, and it was cool enough in there that the ground and everything was still just for a minute longer covered in frost. And I couldn't help it. I, Even if I'd wanted to, I... I turned in a slow circle and thanked the north, east, south, and west. Thanked everything that has ever been that this kid was okay and sleeping with her head against my heart. We made it through the year and the world is still alive with the purest beauty. I can tell you for sure that nature themselves is magic. What concerns me sometimes in which discourse is when it leaps from the ego to the spirit realms and it seems to skip over this, the natural world. The intense thrumming presence of life in all caps. The mysterious beauty of water cycle. The question of why things grow. The patterns of illness, pain, and health. The great unknowns of magnetism and the Marianas Trench and why the trees are walking east. I want to be here for the meeting point of craft and experiment. 
knowledge, and imagination. HPB writes, what is imagination? Psychologists tell us that it is the plastic or creative power of the soul, but materialists confound it with fancy. The radical difference between the two was, however, so thoroughly indicated by Wordsworth in the preface of his lyrical ballads that it is no longer excusable to interchange the words. Imagination, Pythagoras maintained, to be the remembrance of precedent, spiritual, mental, and physical states, while fancy is the disorderly production of the material brain. For me, the critique HPV points us to is the one of mistaking imagination for fancy, of denying our own memories and experiences and imaginings, of skipping the truth of the spectacular world and the utterly magical people in it for the illusion of materialism, or of dogma, be it theological or scientific or political. This is the HPB I will keep in my heart after this episode. I see her in her men's boots walking the world, with her infinite quotes pulled from the air around her wielded to resist tyranny and seek out the wisdom of the gods, wondering what is wisdom and who are gods. But honestly, if you read her books, you may feel like some of her critics, that this is hogwash. I think the same thing could be said of a lot of great metaphysical and political philosophers, for whatever that's worth. Have you read Crowley, just off the top of my head? At the end of his thorough accounting of HPB's life and writing and controversies, Lachman concludes, My own belief is that HPB was one of the most creative synthesizers in modern thought, and that she pulled together an enormous wealth of ideas, observations, and speculations about ourselves and the cosmos from a dizzying range of forces, and out of this produced at least two undeniable classics. If she did only this, it would be enough for us to owe her a debt of gratitude. Being one of the most adventurous, fearless, and indomitable women of the 19th century in the bargain makes what we owe her almost an embarrassment. Those around her had the benefit of being exposed to her electric character, and many profited by the shocks. It was with some accuracy that Rudolf Steiner described her as an electrically charged Leyden jar, from whom electric sparks, occult truths, could be produced. If we go in search of her own masters, more than likely we will not find them. But we may discover someone even more remarkable along the way. That old lady, chum, and tireless scourge of flapdoodle, the incomparable HPB. I can only aspire to be known as something so delicious as a tireless scourge of flapdoodle when I am gone on to the astral plane. And of all her insights, I will gladly sign my name at the very least to this. Our voice is raised for spiritual freedom and our plea made for enfranchisement from all tyranny. You must be a witch. Season three of the Missing Witches podcast is brought to you by Foxglove Farm. Use offer code Missing Witches at checkout.